This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. What impact are all these judges having on us? None of you are, you know, really impacted by a judge, are you? Yeah. We all are. And not just at the Supreme Court level. I mean, just the decision uh, that of uh, gay marriage. That just remember the impact that that had on your community, on discussions in your community. You know, a decision. It's it does get the the conversations going, right? It gets us talking, and um, and and I think there's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in being able to discuss stuff. In fact, I'm convinced. If we could communicate better, we wouldn't be as impacted by the justices. One of the things I've been learning a lot about the Supreme Court is they really are a very unified body in that they have a rule, for example, that when they hear um, – and this is when they're in chambers, not in front of everybody. But when they, when they go through and, make, and have discussions about certain issues, they have a rule that everybody at the table – has to answer and give their opinion about the issue before anyone can give a second opinion. So nobody can have two comments until everybody's had one comment, which is a really cool principle. And I think the, their ability to maybe think through it, uh, to talk without necessarily having to react to everything, um, it's, I, I think if we could understand how they do it behind the scenes, we might value some of their decisions more. I get, too, that you have your issues and everyone has their position, but but uh, there's also something to see there. And I saw a story that I wanted to bring to all of our attention about a judge in Georgia, in Bibb County, Georgia, um, Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. There's a viral video out with, her, with Verda Colvin um, discussing – the consequences with some wayward kids. They they were in a program. She was a she's in her robes. They're in the courtroom, and she has two sides of the courtroom. The girls are on one side. Young men are on the other side. Uh, Judge Verda Colvin is a is an African American female, and she's talking to a room predominantly of African Americans. And um, it was, I think, one of the most beautiful sites. I think of of a judge. And the power of a judge as she's arguing and making an argument in front of these kids that are in trouble. They're, you know, they're in one of those programs that they're trying to get them some reality. And let me just play a few of, um, of her points. One of the first things she's telling them is you're going to have a choice here. You're, you're either going to end up in court or, or a body bag. You can have the ultimate experience. You can be in this body bag. And the only way somebody will know you're in here is by this tag that'll have your name on it. What do you want to do? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What do you want to do? What? That's what you might want to start doing. Because listen to me. The way you're going, you will go to jail. Or you will get up in this body bag. Hmm. She also uh, is is pleading with them to be something. You're special. 
You're uniquely made. Stop acting like you're trash and putting pictures of yourself on the internet. Stop being disrespectful to your parents. Care about your future. Be somebody, anybody can be nothing. It doesn't take anything to be nothing. Be something. Do you understand what I'm saying? Care about yourselves. The fact that you're shedding tears means you want to be better and you want to do better. Do it. The only person stopping you is you. Do better than what you've been doing. Do you understand me? Mm. Don't you love that? This is this is a civil servant helping you parents raise your kids, helping all of us. I mean, think about it. If you had a child that was wayward and struggling, wouldn't you love a judge like Superior Judge, uh, Court Judge Verda Colvin telling your kids this? Um, another thing she says is don't let your school or don't let your family become an excuse. But you don't have to make a decision that you're going to do something different. And don't use your family situation as an excuse. You hear me? Don't use that as an excuse. I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know where you live, but don't use it as an excuse. Anything either of you all are going through, somebody else went through it who's successful now. Mm, Last but not least, she's going to help all of us remember that we're special. Nobody else can do what you're supposed to do in this world. Nobody else. And if you don't do it, we won't have it. I, I continue to believe one reason why our society is so messed up, because some people who were supposed were born to do certain things just dropped the ball. They didn't do it. And so for every person who didn't do what they needed to do because they were given unique gifts and talents, we're missing something as a society. Mm. An eight-minute speech by Bibb County Superior Court Judge Verda Colvin. We're special. You've got to deliver something. If you don't deliver it, guess what? Nobody does. We don't get it. And kids, you have a choice. Court, at this rate, you're going to be in court and jail or you're going to be in a body bag. I love it. I guess that's judicial activism. Yeah, everybody needs to hear it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, you know, you think about it. It's just easy to say, well, you know, if these people would just, uh, you know, save their money... They wouldn't get in this trouble, and then they wouldn't have kids that have behavior problems. Oh, great. Easy for you to say. Again, most of us, I don't feel, truly get what it feels like to um, to be completely underwater financially. You know, where you've got four lives hanging on your paycheck, and it's already 30 40% below what you need. So let's be careful not to judge. Let's be careful not to not to just quickly critique and assume that th- this is just simply because people love to spend money and they don't have self-discipline. There are a lot of heroes that I think if we could go and look at, you know, maybe the average worker at a fast food restaurant, a mother with a couple children at home trying to make a living, and again, you may not like these minimum uh, uh, minimum wage options that are being proposed out there. And again, I'm a business owner too. I'm not a. I don't love being told exactly how much I have to pay somebody. When I have to have the discussion with my son to come vacuum my office, and um, he asks me how much will you pay me, and I tell him minimum wage, and he's like, "Yeah, no, not doing that. I won't. I won't work for that." And I'm like, you're 14, boy. 
This was a few years ago. You're 14. Well, I can get 10, you know, working on a food truck. No, you can't. Well, yeah, I can. Well, he got his job. He got a job this summer. And uh, he's going to wash cars for just a, under minimum wage but some tips. Went to his first day of school or of, of work. Came home that night. How'd it go, son? Yeah, I want a new job. It's interesting. Work is hard. But uh, be grateful for what you do have, right? You, If you have the blessing or the benefit now to actually be ahead financially or just breaking even financially, it's a huge benefit to you that you may not even understand. People that have money live longer. Well, duh, because they can just sit at the beach and maybe. But some of it's simply because when you have money, you live in a different location. You live in a healthier place. Data has existed uh, from the American Medical Association talking about the fact that simply where you choose to live in the country will determine your life expectancy, too. Right? This is this is the diet you're going to end up participating in. This is the, the friends your kids are going to have. Smoking, drugs, alcohol, all of those things decline when you have more income, interestingly. Would you believe that? According to a study in 2010, uh, in the annual review of sociology, poorer people are more likely to smoke and drink in excess, which are both potential causes of dying younger. So there's a lot of this that's tied to your income. Exercise. People with more money are more likely to exercise. Well, sure, they got the time. That's totally true. The exercise, a lot of the the um, poorer people might get is running to the bus that then has to drive them for two hours to their job. That's their exercise. They sit more time probably on mass transit trying to get to their home that's affordable. And wealthier people have the luxury maybe of just getting in a car or taking a shorter ride to their home. They're able to live maybe closer to work. Statistically, uh, uh, wealthier people are more educated, which decreases uh, or increases your your revenues, your incomes. There's a ton of benefits to it. And wealthier people have more access to health care. And when we now find out that your debt and your debt load impact your child behavior, kids whose parents have unsecured debt, who are constantly trying to get the credit card bills paid, who are going to payday loans, those their kids are going to struggle. Which came first, the kid or the payday loan? I would apparently argue it's the debt. And there's a million reasons why people are in debt. Remember that. We are so quick to judge, and we can't just judge. If we want to create a healthier community, then let's go fight for better rules, better laws to manage what people can charge as interest. I mean, I guess it's beautiful to just have capitalism, but there's a cost to capitalism that we are now maybe learning, and some of the costs to some forms of capitalism, or at least just extreme money-making mentalities is simply it might be impacting our health and our, and our behavior of our children. 
I mean, let's just look at it. You don't have to love it. But we can start to figure out why some people just can't seem to get out of this hole instead of having an immediate reaction that, oh, they're just not trying hard enough. Let's reverse it. Let's, wouldn't that be a great test? Reverse it for real. Have all of Congress go live in an inner city. Let's see how they handle it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. It's out there, and you're part of it. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. little Air Force One music for you. Uh, it's as if Donald Trump's about to land his, his airplane. Apparently, this is the music they play as he lands his plane. Ever wonder what kind of information you would have access to as president of the United States? Well, Donald Trump is, uh, is supposedly just about ready to start taking presidential intelligence briefings. And, um, you know, many now are questioning if that should happen. Harry Reid wants the CIA to give Donald Trump a fake intelligence briefing. So that he can't go share the secrets with Russia. And it's become a big issue. Um, In fact, if you remember earlier in the campaign after uh, the FBI director Comey suggested that Hillary Clinton didn't handle her intelligence materials um, as carefully as she should have. Uh, Many were saying she shouldn't have intelligence briefings. So we decided let's go to an expert who's basically written the book on this and, and just learn about what happens with uh, all of the secrets that the president has to handle. Uh, David Priest is joining us. He is the author of the book, the, Pre- the President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents from Kennedy to Obama. And uh, we are honored to have you on the show. Doc- Dr. David Priest, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. What an interesting, um, boy, time to have you on the show, just in the last few hours even, uh, with everything that's going on with Donald and his statements about, yeah, why don't you have the Russians go find Hillary Clinton's emails? What do you think? Uh, Just give us your sense of what you see going on in the current presidential race with regards to to intelligence and, and our state secrets. Sure. I have to tell you, for somebody who's interested in presidential intelligence and the presidency, this is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, totally. It keeps bringing up new ideas that relate to what does the president see, what do presidents-elect see, what do presidential candidates see when it comes to top-secret intelligence, classified Mm. information that has grave implications for national security if it is somehow exposed or, or misused. I've seen the calls on both sides. I've seen people reacting to the FBI director's comments saying that Hillary Clinton has proven careless with this information and she should not receive the customary intelligence briefing that is provided to major party presidential candidates. And then, of course, I've heard the calls for Donald Trump not to receive these (laughs) because of his uh, ability, uh, seemingly on every occasion, to blurt things out that, that don't seem in line with what's appropriate at the time. So we have these calls going on, but there is a long-standing custom of doing this, and I think it's going to take something even more dramatic for the tradition to be closed off this year. Yeah. I mean, what's I think great about your background, too, um, David, is 
You're a former intelligence officer during the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations and a former manager of da- and daily intelligence briefer of the CIA. I mean, you, you've been in there. You've, you've been in the seats. You've, you've transferred the information. Right. Um, talk about – kind of give us an overview of what is the, the president's daily brief and um, what does it look like? How does it go down? Is it a meeting? Is it a book that you hand him? Do you take the book of information back when you leave the room? How does it all go down? You bet. Let me, let me tackle some of that. Yes, first of all, I have been there and done that. But the book that I wrote about this, the president's book of secrets, it's not my story. It's based on interviews I did with all of the living former presidents, all of the living former vice presidents, most of the former CIA directors, national security advisors, and others who are intimately involved with this daily book. It goes back to the 1960s. Uh, Before then, there was not a daily product focused personally on the president, on the president's reading style, on his needs and interests. But it did start then and every day since then. We've been giving the president's daily brief, or PDB, to the president and to the small handful of other senior officials that the sitting president allows to receive it. Not all presidents have received a briefer. Some of them have preferred to receive this book, which is usually in the range of about 10 pages. Sometimes it can be much shorter, sometimes much longer. But it does contain top-secret classified assessments of world affairs using all sources of intelligence, ranging from reports from the CIA's spies to details picked up by the National Security Agency's listening posts, satellites, everything can go into the president's daily brief. Some presidents have chosen to sit down with a briefer, that is, get somebody from the CIA, traditionally now the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, somebody to sit and talk through the content of the book to explain what's in there, perhaps Hmm. to explore alternative assessments, things like that. So they, you really would customize it if somebody would rather hear it and have questions about it and wants to kind of ruminate with it, and that's one way to do it. Another is just hand them the book, let them read it. Um, that's exactly right. And, and the, one of the funniest things researching this book is looking at the variety that has come across the years from different presidents. Some presidents – Richard Nixon was a lawyer. He got his PDB in the form of a legal brief. It flipped at the top, and it had facts and opinions separated in separate columns. You had Lyndon Johnson. He tended to do a lot of work late at night sitting in bed, so he would get the PDB delivered to him in the afternoon so he could read it in the evening instead of in the morning. Wow. Traditional approach. Other presidents have varied in terms of how they wanted it. The key is it is the president's book of secrets, and it is tailored to the sitting president. I often say if the president decides that he wants his daily intelligence in the form of interpretive dance, there's <laughs> going to be a whole lot of intelligence officers learning how to dance to That's communicate right. that information. Well, with Mr. Trump, it's probably going to be in the form of CNN. You're going to have to do a newscast for him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a different challenge for presidential candidates. Now, let me make a, yeah. something very clear here. Presidential candidates do not receive the president's daily brief. They have not been elected to anything. They do not see the crown jewels of United States intelligence. Traditionally, what has happened since the PDB was formed in the 1960 is the sitting president has allowed the president-elect to start receiving the PDB after the election. That is a preparation for the presidency. It's a chance to get familiar with the daily intelligence grind. It's also a way to get the president to interact with his soon-to-be intelligence services to get a sense of 
how does this work for me? Is there something I would like done differently in this book that I'll get every day to suit my personality and my needs better? But the candidates don't get that. The candidates' briefings that we've been talking about for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, those are top-secret assessments of world affairs, but they do not have the specific information about intelligence sources and methods that come in the president's daily brief. Would they be uh, would they be deeper briefs than maybe sent the Senate are getting or Congress might be seeing? Yeah, it depends because on the Senate and the, the House side as well, there are intelligence committees. And those intelligence committees typically are the ones that deal with the most classified information. Someone who has been on one of those committees probably would not be surprised by the level of analysis and the kind of information brought into these candidate intelligence briefings. However, many other members of Congress rarely get high-level classified briefings. Of course, Donald Trump has not served in the Congress. Hillary Clinton, as a former senator, would have received some of those briefings. But we have to remember, she was also Secretary of State for four years, and she was one of the designated recipients of President Obama's Book of Secrets. So she is very familiar with what daily intelligence can do, and there probably would be nothing in the candidate intelligence briefing she'd receive, that would be a surprise to her in terms of its form and its content. Uh, David, do we need to worry that the president possible, uh, that Hillary Clinton, for example, she was already receiving these for five years. Um, Should we worry about her history of not handling intelligence very carefully or it, does does the CIA ensure their own intelligence is, is handled carefully at that level? Well, at this point, since about 2004, 2005, with the institution of the Director of National Intelligence to oversee the entire intelligence community, the tradition of CIA providing these briefings has shifted to that new bureaucracy. So the, the Director of National Intelligence oversees the briefing and its process. <laughs> uh, CIA is still involved as one of the largest uh, elements of the intelligence community. In terms of Hillary Clinton, there was no indication that when she was Secretary of State, she was being casual with the president's daily brief itself or or saying anything about it or emailing about it. So the precedent of that suggests that politics is playing a large role here. Mm -hmm. However, we do have an unprecedented situation. We've never had an FBI director call out a presidential candidate for being reckless or careless with classified information. Uh, that introduces a, a new element. Wow. Talk about um, – let's just, let's just ask you one more question. We'll take a break. But I, what, what does the, the National Intelligence Agency or, or the National Security Agency and the national – the intelligence directors, what are they thinking of as they look out at the election and they hear Donald say what he's saying about Russia – and, uh, you know, come on, go find those emails kind of comments. Yeah, I sure can't speak for the people in those positions. I don't envy them being in those yeah. positions because they're in a tough bind now. The, the White House has said that it is up to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to do these briefings, and the White House will not interfere. But ultimately, it is a presidential call. There is nothing in law that says that candidates must receive intelligence briefings. It's mm. a custom that started way back in 1952. Harry Truman had come into office as president, not even knowing the Manhattan Project existed. He didn't know Mm. about the atomic bomb, and suddenly he was the president in a time of war. He did not want his successors to be in the same situation. He also thought, and the tradition has carried forward, 
that presidential candidates should have a sense of the classified situation around the world so they don't say something galactically stupid on the campaign trail <laughs> that will either box themselves right. into a bad situation once they're president or complicate national security for the sitting president. So that's the tradition and being a tradition since the 1950s. It would take a heck of a lot for somebody oh. to decide we are not going to do this anymore. Yeah, can you imagine that? And just the, oh boy, the the issues that would create. Well, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. David Priest. He is the author of the book, The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents from Kennedy to Obama. When we come back, we're going to get into some of the, uh, the interesting secrets that uh, the past presidents have had to deal with. And some of the inside stories, uh, fascinating, fascinating read. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. David Priest. He's the author of the book, President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America's Presidents from Kennedy to Obama. Uh, Dr. Priest is currently the Director of Analytic Services for Analytic Advantage Incorporated, was a former intelligence officer during the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, and the former manager and daily intelligence briefer at the CIA. Dr. Priest, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. And helping us understand this, I mean, I can't imagine the burden as you as as you sit down as a presidential, either I guess candidate, but really as you sit in the Oval Office your first week or two or three, and have these briefings, it it must be overwhelming for the president. Yeah, John F. Kennedy said it clearly, and President Obama echoed this last night when he he said nothing really prepares you for the presidency. But experience does matter, and uh, presidents have varied in their experience coming in. But when it comes to the top secret intelligence you get in your daily book of secrets, there's nothing quite like it. Sure, there's news analysis out there. There's plenty of people talking about foreign affairs and national security. But when it comes to knowing what's inside the mind of a foreign adversary or an opportunity overseas that is only clear through top secret intelligence information, that's something that does tend to serve as a wake-up call for presidents. In the history that I wrote, the President's Book of Secrets, and talking to the living former presidents and people who had worked with presidents even farther back, I found that every president took this very seriously. They treated the book differently. They treated their intelligence agencies differently. But they seemed to have all appreciated the fact that they needed to have an objective understanding of international affairs that can come through a well-executed intelligence document like this. Oh, yeah. And if you think of somebody, I mean, Hillary Clinton um, and Secretary Clinton for years had, I'm sure, some type of information or briefing maybe as the first lady to, to one level or another. But then as a senator had other levels of briefings. And then as a as a attorney or as the secretary of state, sure. she I mean, I, really, it, it, it has to have. It ha- it's prepared her probably better, as President Obama was saying, better than anybody to be able to to start running with the intelligence. Right. Well, there's certainly some politics involved there. No one will doubt that right. Secretary Clinton has the experience based on those positions. 
saying she's the most experienced shows right. a disregard for history. You've got yeah, talk about that. George H.W. Bush, who was a World War II Navy pilot, the youngest in the Navy at the time. He became Republican National Committee chairman. He was a representative. He served as the de facto ambassador to China, the CIA director, <laughs> vice president for right. eight years. You, you can't compare and, those two. Well, and president uh, during – wasn't he temporarily even – I don't know if he, the powers were ever turned over to him, but he led right. the government as President Reagan had been Yeah, very, very briefly shot. during, uh, yeah. I think, Reagan's surgery. Uh, there was a, uh, a brief moment when he did. But it's also interesting with the George H.W. Bush case because not only did he feel as a former CIA director and as a daily recipient of this Book of Secrets for a full 12 years, not only did he feel a close enough connection to it that when I asked him to write the foreword to the book, he stepped right up and did it. Hmm. But he also told me a lot about how he took the book. Yes, he, he treated it very seriously. He had things like the end of the Cold War to manage, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, and then the war to liberate Kuwait. Very oh, wow. serious issues. Yeah. But he was comfortable enough with his intelligence and with the people working in the intelligence services to have some fun with it. In one case, he made a bet with his daily briefer over the analysis in the book about an election in Central America. He bet that the analysis in the book was wrong. Oh, wow. Uh, and the president was right. And the next day, the briefer brought an ice cream cone <laughs> off the bet. Oh, that's things great. Like that. yeah. yeah. Things like that showed a lot of comfort with the book and allowed the intelligence folks to put some humor into the book. One former PDB editor back from the Bush 41 days remembers a title on an article about the withdrawal of Soviet forces from East Germany, and they titled it, Tanks for the memories. <laughs> I mean, you got to have a little fun. Yeah, and President Clinton did the same. Uh, did he? Though he had a very different approach to the book. How, how did he? Clinton. How did he want it delivered? Well, he had more of an ebb and a flow with the daily briefings. At first, he started with daily briefings, but he was habitually unable to keep to a schedule. And right. his advisors were constantly having to reschedule things, push things back. And it just got to the point where the regular intelligence briefings couldn't continue. But he still did read the book every day and had a good enough interaction with it that the CIA authors of it a couple of times pulled a fast one on him. In one case, they wrote up a book. He starts reading it. And article after article in the President's Daily Brief is talking about crises all over the world. And all of them are linked to specific things that President Clinton has said or done in the previous days or weeks. And it's only after he gets through it for a while that he realizes this is a prank PDB. They're giving me a fake one to give me <laughs> a, a fun experience today. They did that both on his birthday and on April Fool's Day. Oh, that's great. A little special attention. Well, I mean, it's, it's got to be so intense that to, to actually play a joke on the president at that level would be pretty fun. Well, there has to be a certain level of comfort. Yeah. And you buy that credibility as an intelligence service if in the Daily Book of Secrets you're delivering the goods on a regular basis. You're giving credible, objective information that's helping the president make decisions by reducing the uncertainty inherent in international affairs. If you do that, and if you do that well, I think any president's going to appreciate a little bit of humor now and then bet. in the mood. Tell us about George W. Bush, um, right. because, I mean, there was a big, apparently, intelligence uh, mistake um, with going into Iraq. Explain, just explain his approach, some of the things we need to know about him, and what may have happened there. Right. The case with George W. Bush is very interesting. He probably had the closest relationship with 
the president's daily brief of any president, even including his father. He had daily working level sessions with the CIA briefers. The funny thing about the whole Iraq situation is once the Iraq war was going on and once it was starting to turn south, what a regular person would probably do is get this steady drumbeat of negative news in the president's daily brief about how bad things are and how the situation is going into decline in so many ways. And it would be natural to just say, I don't want to hear it anymore. I know it's bad. Please stop beating me over the head with it. George W. Bush did the opposite. He actually turned up the volume on the intelligence briefings by adding to the regular daily session what came to be known as deep dive briefings, when they would bring in experts on particular issues, largely Iraq and Afghanistan, but many other issues as well, people who would go into the Oval Office or the Situation Room and sit and talk to the president on a specific topic for 20, 30, 40 Hmm. minutes in depth. That's the kind of relationship he had with it. It's a totally separate question what a president does with it. That is, are the decisions ones that at the time or in retrospect we would agree with? But in terms of taking the intelligence seriously and pushing intelligence analysts to give him more information, George W. Bush probably is at the top of the list of those who have received the Book of Secrets. He went deeper. And it's like the deeper he went into the war, the deeper he went into these situations, he took the content even deeper. Right. Wow. And, and that came from the very beginning, even as president-elect. I mentioned earlier that as presidential candidates, they do not receive the president's daily brief. But right. as soon as a president-elect is named, traditionally, the sitting president has allowed the president-elect to start seeing the president's daily brief. Funny thing happened in the year 2000, of course, because the election happened. We didn't know who the next president was. Right. Al Gore and George W. Bush were. Yeah, who gets the briefing? Al Gore was in perfectly fine situation. He was vice president. He was receiving the PDB every day. But as it went on and on, they started to wonder, how long can this wait? And so for the first time in history, somebody started receiving the president's daily brief, who was not either president or president-elect, because the Clinton administration decided it had gone on long enough And even before the Florida recount was resolved through the Supreme Court, George W. Bush started getting the PDB to prepare him in case he was, in fact, the president-elect. Wow. I mean, there's something about it. And even the willingness to sit there all day and keep up on this is – it's 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 to be respected. Uh, talk about uh, did anybody not value it? Did anybody not pay as much attention historically? Right. The standout there is Richard Nixon. Now, Richard Nixon came into office with extensive foreign policy experience. He'd been vice president for eight years. He'd been a prominent senator focusing on foreign affairs. He came into office, and while he was president-elect, the CIA set up a transition office to try to serve his intelligence needs. They delivered a copy of Lyndon Johnson's President's Daily Brief to his office every day. All of those were returned, envelopes unopened. Uh, It appears that Nixon didn't even look at them. During his administration, he probably read the PDB, but we don't have definitive evidence of that because he did not take a strong interest in it and did not interact politely with his intelligence services. Almost all of his interactions with the analysts and the managers of analysts were very negative, even scornful, putting them down as either being stupid or being, in his mind, politically biased. Wow. Um, And yet... They kept producing the PDB every single day for him, hoping that that would help reduce the uncertainty in those decisions he had to make. Does it um, – you guys, the, the CIA, and when you were doing your briefings, you spend so much time and energy to make sure it's accurate. 
Does it frustrate you to see um, intelligence handled and mishandled and and even out of naive, either whether naivete or just an ignorance or out of spite? Of course it does. Uh, it's it's a very special product because it contains the highest level of classified information that is available designed to help the person who has to make some of the toughest decisions in the world. And there have been administrations in the past where the PDB was passed around and people saw it who weren't supposed to. In one case, back in the Reagan administration, it was passed around. Lots of people around the National Security Council and the White House were seeing it. And one person was very upset by that. And that was George H.W. Bush, the vice president. He had been CIA director and he knew that in some cases, lives were on the line. The intelligence sources providing the information that went into the PDB, if that information got out, in theory, they could be identified and they could be in deep trouble. Oh, wow. Oh, I think it's powerful. What a great book. Great work. Uh, Dr. David Priest, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your insight. Thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure. Perfect timing uh, for all of us. Uh, go, Go look up the book, folks. The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings to America Presidents from Kennedy to Obama. Aren't you lucky to know that you got people that are willing to, that are behind the scenes? So whatever candidate gets in there, there's people behind the scenes doing everything they can to make sure the information is accurate. We'll take a break, folks, uh, continuing to, uh, to give you the information you need to make the decisions you need to in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as as we talk with uh, Dr. David Priest about uh, national security, national intelligence, one thing that soothed my soul and heart was the idea to, of the fact that there are people behind the scenes that are in the know, that they have information, and um, they're going to at least make sure these candidates are informed. I can only imagine what they're thinking about as they look at, for example, Donald Trump. And, um, wow, there's just a lot. They, they've they okay, we're going to have to do this kind of briefing and we're going to have to stay on it. But the benefit, I think, for all of us folks is everybody can have your own style. You can have your own approach. The intelligence is the intelligence. The secret, uh, the CIA and the National Security Advisors, they're going to they're going to do what they can. And you still have to then take the intelligence and make intelligent decisions with it. You have to be willing to act. And that is some of the pushback that's been there on Hillary Clinton is she's had the intelligence. She's been in these briefings, and yet she has made uh, – they they comment on the fact that she has made some mistakes in Libya and um, in other places that, that, that are costly. So – it's not enough to be in the know, folks. You also have to um, have the character to, to secure that information, uh, which, if you notice again, both the candidates are being questioned on. Loose lips sink ships, right? And uh, Hillary Clinton, loose you know, email servers sink possible presidential candidates, if you're not careful. So you've got to have the character to manage it, but you also have to have the competency to know what to do with this data. So just think about it. The, the country will be safe. It, it, it will be safe security-wise. It may not be safe uh, with intelligence and competency-wise. 
That's what you're voting for. So just think that through as, uh, as you're making these big decisions in your life. We will um, take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. we got a good show for you coming up, continuing the lessons you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. However you feel about evolution, survival of the fittest, we've got an audio that may show you, um, I don't know. There's just a time where you got to let nature take its course. A bear came across a, a solo kayaker, Mary Maley, who was on a solo kayaking trip from Ketchikan to Petersburg, Alaska. And, uh, you know, was posted outside of uh, the U.S. Forest Service cabin in Berg Bay. And uh, she had just carried her tent, food, and gear into the cabin before she was going to go on a four-mile hike, I guess. So she just removed the food from her kayak and carried it up to the cabin. Well, she heard something outside while she was having her lunch, and she came out to find a bear, right? Um, And the bear started to approach her, and this is the beginning of... I'm pretty sure not the best bear handling technique. Let's listen. No! Get away from the kayak! Stop it, bear! Bear, you're breaking it! You're breaking my kayak! Why are you breaking my kayak? What am I going to do? Stop that, bear! Bear, stop! Stop breaking my kayak, please! Please She is the nicest victim of a bear uh, terroristic act on a kayak I've ever heard. She didn't even swear. That was, okay, it's a bear. It's a bear. It's doing what bears do. By the way, this is after the bear started getting curious about her and followed. uh, She could smell the food she was out there eating. And, uh. Holy cow. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? Gosh darn it. You bear. She's talking to it like it's um like it's her child. Not like a ferocious wild animal that could kill her. And she even and we didn't have the audio for that, but as the bear approached, she said, "I'm going to spray you with pepper spray." She is so nice. I'm sure the bear feels really good about her. It's not even food. It doesn't even taste good. No. It's not even food, bear. It's plastic. It's 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 a carcinogen. <laughs> 
You ought not be eating that, Bear. She's obviously stressed, but, you know, maybe a really loud noise, you know? If she had a gun, don't know if she did, maybe that's where you use a gun to just shoot a gun and the bear would run away. Or in that case, a bomb. She could just drop a bomb. You're supposed to be asleep. Hey, bear, did you not know it's sleepy time? Why aren't you hibernating? Holy cow. (sighs) Now, this is a perfect example of where if we just let nature be nature, Mary would be dead. Because if you're going to talk to a bear that way, by the way, the bear destroyed the kayak. She's very nice. Please stop breaking my things. Oh, wow. She ended up, the bear left, I think, to probably go hibernate because he didn't know. What she doesn't know is there's like no bear deadline to hibernate. You know, when it's just ready, it's just going to go. She's like, I You're thought. supposed to be asleep. Yeah. Well, she had to then – she tried to call down. There was a sailboat out there in the, in the bay, and she tried to get a hold of the people on the sailboat, but she, they couldn't, she couldn't get a hold of them. So she had to swim in the cold water out to the sailboat. Oh, <laughs> oh it's just so funny. This is why, you know – you know, people laugh about all these hunters and the fishermen and all these outdoorsmen that have guns. But that would have been a good time to have a gun. Not to shoot the bear. You don't need to kill the bear. Just fire the gun and scare the bear away. You could just scream. And she notice what she used. Questions. Why are you eating my thing? What if the bear just what said, What am I going to do? What, what you're going to do, lady? What if the bear just stood up and put his hands on his hips and like, okay, what I want you to do is shut your cake hole. You're making too much noise and you're stressing me out. That's, that's just funny. That's just funny. It's such a contrast. It just seems like she's a city slicker. Please stop. Please, wild animal. I think she's talking to you, Matt. Is she is she talking to me? Yeah. Am I beating this dead horse? Please stop. Can't you just see like a mountain lion rawr, ripping? Please, why are you doing this? You're going to ruin my shirt. Gosh darn it. Oh, why are you doing that? <laughs> oh, I bet you she's such a lovely woman. She really is. I'm sure she's the she's the kind of woman. By the way, she's videotaping the whole thing. And you can see the bear walk up to her and she's like, I'm going to spray you with pepper spray like it's a warning. You kids, I'm going to get you. Anyway, she sprays the bear. She's lucky to be alive. She reminds me of you, Ben. Lovely person.
That time when the raccoon came in? Yeah. Silly raccoon grabbing on my neck, sticking your teeth. (laughs) Anyway, great, uh, great lessons for all of us. There's a time to be nice. There's a time to like plead. And she used orders. Stop that. She used questions. She said, please. And thank you. She would said, gosh, instead of swearing. I totally appreciate that. There's just a point that it wasn't working. He thrashed your kayak. Make a noise. Scare the thing. Just scare it. Throw a rock at it. I didn't want to hurt it. Of course you didn't. You're just lucky to be alive. Hope we've all learned a lesson today. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're... They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits. Okay, And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. Twenty percent of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Not interesting. One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? I mean, like they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua news agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. 
it persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've talked about millennials a lot on the program, and we got to be careful. We act like they're lepers, that they don't have any gumption, any they just aren't motivated, but that's not true. They are motivated. They're just motivated differently. Isn't that right, Ben? Um, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. You weren't exactly. even listening, were you? I understand. Um, I understand. Again, I did doze off a little bit, but uh... it's in in the end, these are just generational differences. And remember, um, your your child, your coworkers may be different. So don't just go in assuming that millennials are all the same way that they don't want to work, that they don't, you know, care. They they do. They just. They they come from a different age where they were raised as the kids that were told they could do no wrong. They were the kids that were told they could be anything they wanted to be. And they were raised with technology in their hands. And they're the most compassionate generation you've ever seen. And open. And they don't necessarily feel like they need a mortgage. These are all the things we've been told historically about the millennial generation. But the question eventually becomes, what do you do? I mean, if I'm working, I've got to understand about millennials. I've got to understand who they really are and not just immediately judge them, not just, you know, throw them into this this uh, belief system about who they are, because in reality, they may they may not be what I I think they are. So we probably ought to learn one by one how to deal with them, how to handle them and how to work with them. Um which is not an easy task for anything, for anybody. Uh, we ought to just as easily be teaching the millennials how to deal with the, the other generations, the X generation, the Y, the, what, we, what I like to call the more perfect generation. Uh, rough around the edges, generally. What, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Just like the difference. So millennials are kind of like they hit the ground running from what I've noticed, observed. Well, half of that was right. 
Um, and then the generation, what are you, baby boomer? No. Generation. I'm an X. I'm a Gen X. You're an X. X. You're Gen generation X. X. Like, uh, like in the word excellent. I yeah. like that. Or exterminate. Yeah, exterminate the millennial. You should be. <laughs> I understand. I don't know why you're talking, but um, <laughs> I sound like Donald Trump right there, shushing a reporter. Shh, to stop. Blah, 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 blah. Millennials, they they really are. Um, they're they're the rising generation. They're bigger. They say they're getting bigger than millennia than baby boomers. This generation, folks, it's here to stay. So whether it's your grandkids, your uh, you know your children, your stepchildren, your friends, whether it's just that that kid that's living in your basement that you're wondering is he ever going to move out, you need to understand this generation. And as it is with all human beings, the the best understanding comes when you're open to to listening and not just immediately qualifying them as a millennial. Right. In the end, if we want to have any progress with our with our our friends, our coworkers, our family, it probably isn't best to start with a prejudice or an assumption. It's probably not best to start with just massive expectations. What the best way to start would probably be to figure out what's really going on in um, in their head, what's really going on in their life, and so. As you're dealing with them, let me give you some tips, some cues, and some clues for how to help uh, work with, manage, and and be connected to um, a millennial. Rule number one about all human endeavors, okay? Anytime you have to deal with another human being, the principle of choice is simply this. In order to influence somebody positively, you must first be influenced by them. If you want to have an effective relationship with your uh, with your millennial, you've got to be influenced by them. Get into them and understand what's going on in their head. Is there a reason that they're not seemingly so rambunctious or ambitious to get out and and start a career? What is it that they are thinking? Are they are they concerned that they? I, I had a. a situation the other day where someone was saying, I really want to do what you do, Matt. I really want to help people learn to talk. I want to do that. I want to speak for a living. And I'm like, great, come follow me. Just come walk and watch what I do. And if you want, I've got a lot of internship stuff we can have you do if you want to learn how to do what I do. Uh, and her, And basically what I said was, Let's do it. Come on over. I, I can't pay you uh, to do this, but I've got stuff you could learn to do, and it would get you up and running, and then I could I could help you get some position in the in the industry. And they looked at me like, well, so I, I would do it for free? And I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you would. You would. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, um, I, I got – is there anything else? Do you ever need me to do anything for to be paid? And I'm like, well, maybe the payment is just that I could probably set you up. I could let you go to my coaching program. People pay a lot of money for that. Yeah, that's what you said about this job with me. You know, for like a year. One of the assumption was with you, Ben, is that it would take off and we would be able to pay you someday. But we can't now. Now we've got to hire somebody that can do the job, and then we're going to pay them. Okay. Uh, okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, 
We're going to take a break. When we come back, our guest Jamie Tenzer is on the line. She's going to be talking to us about the skills, the tools, the rules for dealing or managing and working with millennials, what you need to know and what you need to not worry about when it comes to the millennial age. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you relate better to the people you're with. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Jamie Tenzer is joining us. She's an executive coach, trainer, and mentor. And for the past 15 years, she's uh, been privileged to coach and train executives and managers uh, to work uh, internationally. And, um, and, and she's, she's a mentor and a trainer. And she has successfully worked with uh, executives in teaching them about how to work with millennials. And today we wanted to bring her in to talk about how how we can learn to better manage and uh, work with the millennials that are in our lives. They make up a major part of the workforce and they are the future of our workforce. Jamie Tenzer, welcome to the Matt Townsend show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Thanks for being with us. It's, um, you know, we, we talked before you got on about how sometimes millennials get a bad rap and we, we throw them together in a big, you know, mix of traits and beliefs about them. But what is it we really need to know, Jamie, about working with millennials? What, what, are, what are some of the keys that, that we, we, we need to pay attention to? Well, it's, it's a really good question. I'd say the first thing is to realize that millennials are not really that different than, than we are. Uh, they're interested in being engaged. They want to be inspired by what they do. They want to get feedback about how they're doing, and they want to feel like they have a future in professionally and also to, uh, to, to their personal development. Right. And, you know, if, if we take a step back, and it's great what you said about we have all these beliefs and we kind of put lump them in a big pile. Uh, if we were to take a step back and just shed those beliefs, you know, shift our perspective and really look at each person we're dealing with as an individual and get curious about who that person is, what makes them tick, how we can ask good questions to find out uh, what it is they're looking for. We'll, we will eliminate probably 75% of the problem right. with millennials. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's it. It, it always starts with our assumptions, right? Our, our beliefs, our prejudice about who the people we're working with. Absolutely. And if you have a mindset that, for example, millennials are lazy, uh, and you're looking at your millennial employee through that, through that filter, if you walk by her desk and she's on the phone, on her cell phone, or if she comes into your office and says, hey, can I leave early today? you're going to look at that through that filter and say, she's not interested in working. Right, right. But if, you were to, if you were to adopt a filter that this is a young person who's creative and has a lot to offer me, then that, that cell phone or, or asking to leave early that one day, it wouldn't trigger that kind of 
I know all about this person mindset. And you would be able to deal with each situation as it comes. You've, you may still not want her to be on her phone during work hours, and you can, you know, talk to her about that. Uh, but it wouldn't be from this place of, oh, you're just one of those. Yeah, exactly. Know? You're just so lazy. So one of the differences might be how they work, their maybe their passion for their work, what they expect to get out of work. But you also talk about the fact that technology, I mean, it's such a norm for millennials. It's, I mean, it should that should become an advantage to you. And it is a huge advantage. And if we can get past this idea that it's, either a waste of time or it's playing, uh, not that there's anything wrong with playing, right. but, you know, if we can get past that and really tap into the efficiencies that are second nature to millennials when it comes to technology and really help them coach us yeah, exactly. and, and, you know, how to utilize those tools. It's, um, they've never, with us, technology was always, it wasn't our life. It was always kind of an addendum, um, an attachment, a part of our life. But in their life, their technology is their life. So when they're, even when I look at my kids, I think of them like, are you still on your phone? But no, they're in their life. This is their world. Yeah. Yeah. And they're on their phone and watching TV and <laughs> right. talking to a friend and doing their homework. So, oh. yeah, we, we <laughs> have a <laughs> we have a we have a new producer on the show. Um, that's actually our uh, she's our social media person, Sadie Nielsen. And she has come in and done more on social media in the month she's been here than I think we were able to do. I mean, in creative, innovative ideas that um, that we never had thought of and she's just like what are you why don't you guys think but it's (laughs) it really is a pretty basic uh basic idea talk about how they communicate differently and um and how we as managers and leaders could help manage the communication better well the first thing as i said is to shift that perspective so that we're we're really coming to each situation with a clean slate the second thing is to ask more questions. When I'm coaching people who are Gen Xers, maybe a a little bit on the older side of the Gen X, um, or baby boomers, there's still an old idea about, you know, the employee listens and the boss talks. Right. And uh, it's just, not only is it not the way it is anymore, should it be that way anymore? I mean, really, can we can we look at the, the upside of asking questions of our employees and finding out and learning from them? And, and through that conversation, we are also teaching them and mentoring them and coaching them. Uh, it, it isn't about not getting what you want. If you're a leader or a manager, you have a responsibility and your employees need to uh, support the vision of the company. But there's a way to do that without this kind of top-down authoritarian style. And the sooner people shift to the new mindset and start asking questions, start listening, start acknowledging their employees for what they're doing right, yeah, you know, they're, go- they're going to get behind 
and and uh, and not keep up with what's happening in the business world today. You know, that's the funny thing. That's the exact same thing Ben was telling me. Ben, my uh, engineer on my show, he keeps telling me if I would just be nicer. <laughs> but I just tell him to be quiet and work, millennial work. <laughs> No, that sounds rude. Um, hey, let's do this. Let's take a break because I want to come back and, and have you talk about the environment and what kind of an environment we could set up as a manager, uh, what might be a better workplace for them, and and really what we might expect or not expect from them when it comes to school and some of those other uh, other challenges that some of them have facing, and, and even student loan and debt, all these different issues. We're speaking about millennials, folks. Jamie Tenzer joins us, and uh, she's talking to us um, about the power and the importance of managing and, and how to better lead a millennial in, our, in, in their workplace and in our lives. Stick with us, helping you connect uh, closer to those that you care about. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we're talking with Jamie Tenzer. Uh, Jamie is an executive coach, a trainer, a mentor, and uh, she has served as supervisor, mentor, and trainer for the International Coach Academy from 2006 to 2015 and is with us this morning to help us learn more about creating a healthy and successful work environment for employee of all, employees of all ages. Jamie, thank you so much for being with us. It is my pleasure. Thank you. What else can we do to create the right environment, the right uh, you know workspace? Do when we think of millennials, are millennials um, do they work well in like an open work environment? Uh, do they do would office closed wall doors help? What's the kind of setting that makes an ideal setting? I would say collaboration is key. Uh, so an open office space is important and lots of opportunity to collaborate as teams and in groups. I was thinking about this um, when you were on break. You know, millennials are living in shorter spans of time throughout each day. You know, with technology, uh, everything is kind of shorter. And we say, well, the attention pa- Span is shorter. That may be true, but but it's very chunked down. So I would say, in terms of how we're dealing with uh, millennials, I would say that we should be offering more opportunities for engagement and shorter time frames. So if you are used to giving your employees feedback, maybe every couple of weeks, how are they doing? Uh, just a comment or two or an acknowledgement, step that up to every week. Mm. Find something to to share with your millennial. You know what? That was great. I love that you had that idea and you brought it up in the meeting. Thanks for taking the ball and running with that. You know, just, just a sentence. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a big, long meeting. Uh, but shorten those time frames a little bit. Give them more opportunity to get together in groups and brainstorm and collaborate and co-create. And give them more opportunity to spend time with you. I know as a manager and a leader, we think, oh, my gosh, I already don't have enough time. Now I have to spend time Mm -hmm. with my millennial employees. But here's the thing. You will save so much time in the long run. 
spend 10 minutes with your employee, ask questions, listen, answer their questions, uh, the work productivity will go up and you will find yourself saving time. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, they're very relational, right? It seems like they're used to wanting to be engaged and appreciated at maybe a higher level than, than the rest of it. Yeah, and I think that we all are relational, yeah. and we all want to be affirmed and acknowledged. And uh, we have gotten used to, those of us who are a little bit older, have gotten used to not having that. Right. That's not how it is in the workplace. You don't get acknowledged. Uh, and, and I think they've got the right idea. I, th- I think all of us need that kind of feedback and relational support and acknowledgement and affirmation. And I think it helps all of us build loyalty, work more productively, feel better about going to the office every day. It's a win-win. You know, it's it probably, once we kind of went through the Industrial Revolution, we all became a bunch of cogs, just a bunch of pieces and parts that, yeah, maybe we have fallen away and this is now a course correction to get back to, you know, an integrated relationship-based work environment. And and you use the word coach a lot um, as as kind of a coaching approach. You see that the manager could really become more of a a coach figure. Talk about that. Yes. So I I think, and again, I'll say for for all generations, we really want coaches and not managers. Uh, Managers, actually, I'm going to say that again. We want managers that use coaching skills as a part of their management style. So coaching skills, and we've already talked a little bit about this, uh, include being curious, interested, listen, ask good questions, acknowledge, and all of those are, are tools that managers can use along with all the other tools that they already have in their toolbox to really create the kind of loyalty and productivity that, you know, we all want in, in our employees. So, yes, I believe in a coach approach. And part of what I do is, is to teach managers those coaching school, skills so yeah. that they can add them to their toolbox. It's, um, I mean, it is a different mentality. It's kind of like, you know, I'm your manager, you do the work, and um, you're saying it's more now. We're a team. I guess that's always supposedly been some of the 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 belief about it, but it seems like this is a group that they can tell if you're not in, and they, they can tell if you don't if you don't know them and don't understand them and, and are frustrated by them, they're going to read between the lines. Yeah, they're really, they're actually really pushing us to, to up our game. One thing that we haven't talked about is executive presence. And we've all been in the presence of leaders who don't need to prove how much they know or that they are at the top of, of the company or that they have the power because they have such grounded presence that they they just being in the room, um, you know who they are. Yeah. You you know the power they have. And 
when those when when we're in the presence of those leaders who don't have to constantly prove their own value but really feel so self-confident that they're able to give power away to those around them that's that's true leadership that's executive presence and you know part of what i work with managers on is how can you incorporate some of these tools for yourself so that you can create that grounded presence and really have the confidence to allow your younger employees to make a difference. No, that's so it's it's powerful too because they there's nothing more um building of conf, of one's confidence than letting having your leader defer to you to yes. to lead and to think and to manage it and to answer it. And that is the ultimate sign of true leadership and confidence is to be able to give that power power away. Yeah. It it's uh it's it's like you said it's very powerful. What? And oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say Jamie is uh, we we kind of are need to wrap it up in a minute or two but um, I, I guess part of this deal is it's it's our management responsibility. It's our leadership responsibility with the millennials. What would you say to the millennial that uh, to, to be able to get in and integrate better with multiple generations of workforce? Yeah, thank you. What a great question. And I do coach millennials. Um, and I would say that for millennials, what needs to happen is patience listening, understanding that you will get your opportunities more likely by asking good questions and listening and doing what is, what is asked of you in an appropriate time frame uh, and with respect. I think, I think sometimes some behaviors of the millennial generation can feel disrespectful to people of other generations, and I don't believe it's meant that way. So some of what I do with millennials is really break down, you know, where are you getting this pushback from the people who are managing you? And let's, let's unpack that and look at how does that, how could you have rephrased that? Hmm. How could you uh, change the way you're relating to the people who you are working for so that you have a, um, a better result yeah. back? Well, James, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a two-way street. And, and yet you, could, you can remember, if any of us can just think back to when we were young and in the work, starting out in the workforce, it would have been so great to have an active, involved leader mentor coach that would take us under their wing and um we probably just need to remember that as we're as we're dealing with the millennials and and really all of our coworkers. Yeah, and really give a gift to your employees that maybe you didn't get when you were when you were in their position, but now you have the great opportunity to give that gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jamie Tenzer, we appreciate it and uh thank you so much for your insights and time. Thank you so much, Matt. You bet. Jamie Tenzer at jamietenzer.com, J-A-M-E-E-T-E-N-Z-E-R.com. Go check out her website and some of her writings there as well and her services. Folks, it's about coaching, really. It's about about being the leader that you, you would have loved to have had. So think about that. Are you, are you that kind of leader? 
Are you the one that uh, that you dreamt of having when you were a young, um, you know, newbie in the company? It's not as easy once you get to kind of management or senior management or the executive level. It's it's still about motivating. And if there's a group that needs motivation, it's it's this millennial. They need to have some passion and some connection to what they're doing. By the way, every human does. And what they might be doing is gently, in a way, or sometimes abruptly, leading us back to really the, the highest level of people we can be. So what frustrates us in them is that they actually have the audacity to want it, to want what we wanted. They have the audacity to, to want it in a certain way. They have the nerve to not need to get like deeply indebted like we did. So maybe some of our frustration with them comes from the fact that we didn't take this stand. And we might be, you know, Gen Xers in debt and overwhelmed and exhausted, and we look at these freewheelers just freeloading. No, they're, they're creating their life. They're just doing it their way. It's always going to happen generationally, right? You're, you're going to create an opposite arc, uh, I mean, parallel in some way, but some uh, results will be opposite of what your parents gave you. People that might be a little slower to marriage if they saw a lot of marriages ending in chaos. People might be slower to get a home loan if they see how miserable their parents were trying to pay off a home loan. Right? People might believe less in certain institutions if they see that those institutions took advantage. So we call that life. And you're getting a little dose of it right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Got to come back. A uh, whole new hour. Next hour, we'll be visiting our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Plus, we'll be playing a game, the, everything you need to know about uh, Hillary Clinton. Get excited for that. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. There's a YouTube video of a, of a, a sister um, and, a, and some brothers. Um, everybody has seen, you know, when you get your wisdom teeth out, they pull your teeth and then they drug, you're all drugged up. And then a lot of people have been making vi- videos about, you know, how out of control you are or the dumb things you say when you're under the influence of the medication after surgery, right? So this, these two brothers uh, have basically – they picked their sister up and for some reason mom and dad are like, yeah, do this. This is a great idea because they seem to have been involved. And they put this elaborate scheme together that once the sister was all drugged up and they were bringing her home – they they had this basically scheme where on the radio an emergency alert comes up that basically says um, that that there's basically a zombie apocalypse that there's a virus that's spreading and um, this woman is under drugs and her uh, so let me just play some of the clips for you this is crazy um, this is the uh, emergency alert system. So 
What the heck? Did you? Hold on, hold on, mom's calling. So the girl's, her mouth is packed with gauze. And she's like, you're driving like a slug. Get to the house. She's mad. She's, you know, she's post-surgery, high on drugs, angry. And the brothers, um, but they, they, they had this elaborate thing playing. So all of a sudden she buys into the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse. But then we get home and they're trying to fill the car up with stuff. And you got to ask questions, right? You got to find out, like, what do we keep? What do we not keep? Listen um, to uh, the next clip about uh, this is about which animal, which pet we keep. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The cat! You okay. idiot! Okay. No! What do we do with the dog? He's the worst! He's already dying! Just leave him! Okay, get we the cat! Okay, okay, I'll get the cat. Please. Mom said we're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Um. <laughs> So you have to choose between the dog and the cat. She's like, the cat, you idiot. Duh. The dog's already dying. <laughs> and um, the next one is about what, what chocolate cake we should take. Millicent, we can only take Fun Betty or chocolate cake. Which one do we take? Fun Betty. You want Fun Betty or chocolate? Why would you Which? No, Millicent, this is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Fun Betty chocolate. <laughs> Why, why? She's yelling, why does it matter? They're zombies. No, this is important, important Millicent. Funfetti or chocolate? Um, and then they got to go to Mexico, right? Because dad, I guess, is on a trip in, in Las Vegas, and they got to get to Mexico, dad says. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico, and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. I can say, I can say pants. So this poor girl, <laughs> she's sitting in the car the whole time, and the brothers are running around. That's why they're out of breath. At one point, they're loading gardening equipment they're in loading the back, gardening. and she goes, "What do we need a garden hoe for? Yeah, get the guns. What are we doing?" They hand her a supposed weapon with a trigger, but it's really one of those extension bars for seniors that help them get their cereal off the top shelf. Yeah, and the little grabber. Bar. Like, Here's the safety, and here you. <laughs> So then they then they're like so Millicent we about Costco they got to go to Costco should we go to Costco listen to her reply do you think Costco should we go to Costco first no it's gonna be a bloodbath in there <laughs> she's probably right she's probably right should we go to Costco no it's gonna be a bloodbath in there they filmed the entire thing so we're gonna post it on our at uh, Doctor Matt Show Twitter feed and you gotta you gotta look it up it is it's funny. It's funny. It's brother, sister gone awry. That that line um, about the cat. Did you see how she knew exactly which one she keeps? Oh yeah. Like there wasn't even a break. <laughs> she hates the dog. The cat. The dog is dying. <laughs> We're going with the cat. Um, but then it was so. Even though they, it was like, it was a pretty extensive game they played on their sister they saved her because right when they told her yeah at the end they're like uh, it's a joke we're gonna go home now she got this look in her eye and you it was like that moment where you know she's either gonna lose it start crying or freak out and start hurting somebody and they turn the video off i think it'll be worse when she's you know i think it was worse when she came out of the drug haze that yeah. she was in 
<laughs> when she realized what was there and she saw the video, she'd probably go nuts. I know. I'm dying to know what she felt about that. But who, what brother hasn't loved to play a trick like that on their sister? They would, we'd all like to do that. Did you ever have a family member tease sure. you? At some point. I mean, we had my brother convinced he was adopted. That's that's a common one. Well, that's an easy one. Everyone does, does that one. My sister and I look like my father's side of the family. Yeah. My brother looks like my mother's side of the family. So it was an easy easy he was uh, adopted story to to buy. That's dramatic. That's poor. That's sad it's, for him. It's fine. He's 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 grown out of it. My sisters used to just say, "Hey, touch the lighter." So. <laughs> Back in the day, cars had lighters that you'd push in, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they'd stick, and then you pull them out, and then there's these orange coils that are just glowing steaming. hot. Yeah, yeah. Glowing I used hot. to play with that all the time. And that one of my sisters was like touch it. And now that's that's your electrical port. Yeah, exactly. Now that's just where we plug our our tools and our devices in. So things have changed. I mean, I'd probably rather have a zombie apocalypse threat than have somebody tell me to touch a fiery coil of lava. Right. Just saying. I used to sit in the car and burn stuff on it. Did you? Yeah, like we had paper in the, you know, just in the, in the glove compartment. You're yeah. like, and then toss it out the window. <laughs> Those were the days. Again, back in the days when we didn't care about kids. We didn't buckle them in. We didn't just have seats. Slide around the back seat. Yeah. It's fine. Don't worry about this it. This is great, Dad. Do you remember when you got in the car and the seat belts were scalding hot? My first car seat as a kid was made out of uh, foam, but most of the foam was gone, so it was just metal and, like, duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> and look how you turned out. It's great. You're fine. Interesting stuff, folks. Man, have, have we changed technology, bringing families closer together. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We could make up whatever story you need to make up to get over the wall. The problem is it's your wall. Some of us, instead of getting over the wall, we just, you know, build a really nice lattice that we secure to the wall. And then we create really nice, you know shrubs around the wall. We paint the wall. We maybe draw a really nice painting and picture on it so we can enjoy the wall more. Maybe you just ought to get over the wall. Now, believe me, there's many things I just have trouble getting over. And yet, as I listen to Jason, you're like, well, duh, make a list. And doesn't does it not make sense to make the list and make it detailed? If, if on the list I today put, write the first chapter of my book. I have four books that are in my head. I've even white papered them. That's how, that's how far I've gotten is I've actually written complete outlines on four different books. <laughs> Haven't written them yet. I've written one book. And the problem is that book, that wall shredded me. So I am like, I am never going to go write another book. But I have some great white papers if you want to read them. But then I have this thing in my head and my heart that keeps saying, hey, Matt, you got to write this book. Or I'll go do a speech and they'll all say, tell us more about that body, mind, spirit idea. Well, it's going to be in my upcoming book. When will that be out? At this rate, 2060, if we're lucky. I mean, I got this wall. I've got to get over it. And I'm you. You're me. We're the same people. We've all got something. But make the list. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And then be willing to just toss the list tonight. Okay, I'm done. Didn't get it all done. But I did get my computer set up, and I did uh, tighten up that the white paper on my book. I, t- I, t- I tightened up my outline. Great. Tomorrow, let's just start 
writing it. Okay, what do I need to do to write it? Make some time, create the space, sit down, lock my door to my office, offend everyone in the office so they don't come near me. Make the list. And take a break. Um, How essential is the break idea? Now, some of us just maybe take too many breaks, like watching Netflix. Terry, on the other hand, just watches Marvel comics, DC comics, and trailers for all the shows coming out. There's more to life than that. Take the break, whatever break you need. It doesn't matter. Just take it. What am I supposed to do, Matt? What am I supposed to do when my husband, that's all he does is take breaks. Well, let's see. Let's look at our options. Uh, Complain. Um, Ignore. Avoid. Mm, Talk about him. Uh, Make him pay for it. Or you could relate. You could talk. You could communicate. Well, I do, but every time I talk to him about it, he gets mad. Okay? That's common. Uh, Every time I have projects that my wife needs done and I don't do them... And then she brings it up like, are you going to do the yard soon? Oh, man. Who I'm usually mad at, by the way, when I get mad at you for bringing up the projects I need to do. I'm really mad at myself, aren't I? I'm mad at me. And yet I, I blame you. It's, it's a neat thing we do. But I'm mad because you're telling me something I know I should be doing. And yet I'm, I'm caught on the wall. Or I'm watching Netflix on the other side of the wall and I don't even realize I'm no longer trying to get over the wall. I've just now accommodated the wall. Made excuses about the wall. One of my rules when I teach and work with couples is just do something different. Just do something different. It's If your spouse is going to be mad either way, then maybe just go out and start doing the yard. And he'll come out mad. I guarantee you he'll come out mad. But remember who he's mad at is... Uh, He's mad at himself. Well, I don't want to make him mad. You're already making him mad by asking him every day. (laughs) He's already mad when he pulls in the yard and the driveway and he sees that his yard is not as nice as everyone else's grass. It's not cut. It's not green. The yard's a mess. He already feels that way, which might be one of the reasons he gets in the funk. So if talking's not working, then just quietly go start working on it. Oh, well, why should I have to work on it? Because it bothers you. Go work on what bothers you. Well, aren't we just enabling him? Well, then nag him and see how that goes. You got to choose somewhere, right? Nag or we're going to work on it. I mean, remember, it's your life too. And if your wall is your husband not getting over his wall, then do something to get over the wall. Right? Adjust. Oh, it's always up to me. It is. Yeah, it is. As long as it's bothering you, it's always up to you. As long as you want to improve it, it's always up to you. As long as you're the one that wants to change, it's always up to you. Anyway, a little coach's corner for you. What do I know? I'm just one of us. We're all jacked up. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can every day to give us all the tools we need. Not just you. We all need them. I talk from my experience being stuck on the wall. We'll be right back, folks.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have chosen their vice presidential candidates, and now Tim Kaine and Mike Pence have arrived as as the vice presidential candidates. Vice presidential candidates have long influenced potential presidents. However, a study conducted by political science professors Kyle Kopko and Chris Devine finds that vice presidents' influence in the presidential in the presidential race. Uh, you know, they influence them in unexpected ways. Dr. Kopko and Dr. Devine join me now by telephone to discuss their book, The Vice President Advantage, How Running Mates Influence Home State Voting in Presidential Elections. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you both for being here and uh, and helping us to discern the real impact of a vice presidential candidate. We know we know they're important. It seemed like they, you know, the vetting process People make a big deal. A lot of times it seems like they're hoping for some, you know, home field advantage. But uh, let's just let's let's kind of go through this um, with both of you. I guess I'll have to have uh, have you take turns speaking. But uh, Dr. Kopko, talk to us about what in your research, uh, what way in what ways do the vice presidential candidates usually influence the campaign? In a variety of ways. So it could be a, a way of reinforcing a campaign message, for example. Uh, we've also seen vice presidential candidates being used to help foster party unity. Uh, whenever it comes to actual votes, though, we tend to find that their effect is often overstated by political strategists and members of the media. Oh. We find that on average, they don't deliver a home state advantage. It's highly conditional. Really? It happens when they come from a small state and they have a great deal of political experience within that state. So think of someone like a Joe Biden or someone like an Edmund Muskie from mm-hmm. 1968 in Maine. But the twist is, you know, those states have very few electoral college votes. Right. So if you're looking to, you know, deliver the election, it's pretty unlikely to happen, uh, given our research findings. Because that, that to me seemed like the brilliance of, of uh, maybe not necessarily, well, I mean, I guess Virginia would be kind of a nice little swingish state to turn. But you're saying that that's a larger state, though, population-wise. That might not be one that would actually turn. That's right. Based on our research, it's probably unlikely just because you need to have a a candidate in place who's more or less a political institution within the state, Hmm. someone who's going to be able to win over the hearts and minds of those constituents and say, you know what, I'm not running for president, I'm just a vice president, but you should support this ticket. You know me, you trust me, this is going to be something that's good for the state, good for the country. And it's really hard to do that in a large, diverse state. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Tim Kaine does have a lot of political experience there, it's just based on our results too large for it to probably have any meaningful effect. Yeah. Dr. Devine, then what um, what do they bring? What does the presidential candidate usually contribute to the president? Hopefully what they'll deliver best is once they're in office, um, you know, deliver competent service and partnership uh, in government. Uh, you know, that's not as interesting during the election season. Uh, but that's ultimately where vice presidential candidates matter. If you choose someone just to help you win an election, based on our research, you're probably not going to get what you're expecting out of them. Yeah. <laughs> you're disappointed by, by that, but if you get into office for other reasons, boy, you're going to be sorry if you have someone by your side who's not ready to do the job. On the other hand, if you could have a really trusted advisor, someone who can bring valuable experience, really like our last few vice presidents, whatever you think of their politics, uh, that's the role they've, they've played. They've been uh, two, probably the two uh, most powerful influential vice presidents in history, hmm. uh, Dick Cheney and Joe, and Joe Biden, and they were chosen not to win a home state, 
not to win a key demographic group, not for any clear electoral appeal, except to reassure voters that once I'm in office, this person is going to be actually able to help me. It's. It seems like Donald Trump, for example, um, would desperately need a strong vice president, maybe one that's been back in Congress that can 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 move Congress. Is that a is that an accurate assumption, Doctor Kopko? I think so. And and throughout the campaign, Donald Trump has branded himself as this Washington outsider, and he's portrayed that in a positive manner. But he's also said he really needs someone who can help him uh, advance legislation and policy, who has that Washington insider experience. So uh, the selection of Mike Pence uh, wasn't terribly surprising to me, but I, I think it does help to uh, make up for any potential shortcomings that Donald Trump has in terms of governing uh, experience. And I think this is also a means of reaching out to some skeptics in the conservative base and saying, look, here's someone who's going to be by my side, who is a social conservative, who is an evangelical, someone who has a dozen years of experience in Congress, plus also has executive experience as governor of Indiana, someone who could do the job for me. Does um, I mean, I, we've talked about Virginia and uh, what Tim Kaine might be able to do there, hopefully maybe maybe influence the election there for the Dems. Um, but Dr. Devine, what else what else is Tim Kaine bringing to the ticket that um, that might kind of you know equal that trusted advisor to to um, Secretary Clinton? Sure, uh, you know, he's bringing some foreign policy experience, which ironically is the major reason why he got passed over in 2008 when Barack Obama was seriously considering him. He's gone to the Senate. Uh, he, he's he's uh, set up committees where he could gain that kind of experience. Certainly not the equivalent of what Joe Biden was bringing in 2008, um, but enough for for that to be a serious credential for him. For that matter, he has a son in the Marines. I think that mm. you know gives a little perspective. Yeah. As well. But um, so he, he he brings that. He's also um, you know for a candidate in Hillary Clinton, uh, where I mean we have both candidates who are quite unpopular and 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 are, are rated um, by the majority of people as uh, untrustworthy. Uh, in this election, or, or not honest, they both have problems with that. Kane is someone, um, and I think for the most part, you could say this with with uh, Pence, although at one point he had some ethics issues while running for office. But um, and, and for that matter, actually, Kane uh, accepted some gifts. But anyway, there's mm. <laughs> doesn't seem to be anything too bad there. Uh, if for the most part, both these guys bring uh, uh, respected character into the position. Uh, they're seen as, as people who are uh, stable in their personality and and trustworthy and, and, and honest for the most part in a way that could help to uh, unpopular candidates. Let's put it this way. At least if they had chosen someone who doubled down on those kinds of ethical issues or, or, or you know, uh, personality issues, it might have further complicated uh, that uh, th- those issues for both presidential candidates. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Like uh, maybe if, um, if Chris Christie had been brought in as vice president with Donald Trump, that really would have complicated the trust issue maybe. Yeah, and especially it would have complicated going after Hillary Clinton for ethics issues. Oh, that's I mean, true. It's not huh? crystal clear, you know, in either case what what was going on. Obviously, you have two sides to those issues, but you know, it seems like there were some problems in in, in both those matters. And uh, Chris Christie, as much as he was trying to uh, truly go through a prosecution scenario in uh, at the convention, uh, I think his his ability to do that would have been very complicated by his own uh, issues. 
Mm. Um, talk about your book, Dr. Kopko. Together you wrote and researched the book, The Vice President or The VP Advantage. What uh, I know you did a lot of empirical research and data. What are some of the findings? Um, you've already mentioned the fact that the home state advantage is maybe more of a myth than a reality when it comes to the vice president. Anything else come out of the research that, uh, that might be interesting or shocking to us? Sure. Uh, we even examined campaign visits to see if uh, campaigns actually believed in the home state advantage. And by and large, we find evidence that campaigns do, in fact, believe that this exists. Uh, hmm. And we do a case study of 2012 uh, for Wisconsin. We find that a disproportionate amount of time and money was spent by both the Romney campaign and the Obama campaign in Wisconsin, uh, when, in fact, it really wasn't as competitive of a state relative to the amount of time and money that was spent there. They really seem to think that Paul Ryan was going to deliver something that election year, and it just didn't materialize. And then we also examine probably the most famous example of a home state advantage, Lyndon Johnson in 1960. And whenever we dig into the survey data, we have individual level data from actual voters from 1960. Oh, wow. We find that there's just no evidence to support this. In fact, the closer and closer one gets to Texas, looking at the North versus the South versus Texas, the less popular LBJ is in the data. And it kind of makes sense because in, in some parts of the South, LBJ was really viewed as a turncoat on issues of civil rights, uh, particularly for his work on the 57 Civil Rights huh. Act. Uh, and internal campaign polls, believe it or not, from the uh, uh, Kennedy-Johnson campaign even bear out that John Kennedy was in some ways just as popular, if not more popular, than LBJ in Texas and Louisiana. So. We don't really find any solid evidence to support the claim that LBJ delivered Texas or the South that year. Is has there? I mean, that's interesting because you would think we would think that um, LBJ could could deliver the South, kind of like you think um, uh, that President Clinton obviously could have could deliver the South because he was from Arkansas. But you're saying with the vice presidential pick, it doesn't necessarily deliver. Uh, a location, a geography, or necessarily a home state, How, would, it, would it be different if it's a female candidate? Uh, based on our analysis, probably not. We didn't do this in the book, but we did a separate analysis for uh, the Washington Post uh, on demographic appeals of vice presidential running mates. So we only had two female vice presidential candidates to date uh, for the major parties, Geraldine Ferraro in 84 and Sarah Palin in 2008. And when we dig into the survey data, we find that women were no more or less likely to vote for that ticket huh. with having a female running mate on, on the ticket uh, after controlling for all the relevant demographic variables and party ID and all that fun stuff. Wow. So it doesn't make as much of a difference. Presidential that, candidates, on the other hand, yeah. they are the ones that motivate vote choice. So their their evaluations are about three times more powerful than vice presidential candidate evaluations. Unbel I mean, I thought it is you're blowing up a myth here. This is because everyone was talking about in this vice presidential selection process, you know, you may as well go for Kasich because he'll bring you Ohio. He'll deliver Ohio. But Ohio's a complicated state, right? And it's diverse and big. And um, But you're saying that uh, that's not necessarily the case. Interesting. Let's take a break, gentlemen. We'll come back and uh, I've got a – I've got – I need uh, Dr. Devine to, to, to give us some more information about past candidates. I, I want to know who were some of the more popular um, 
and, and powerful vice presidents of through history, if, if you can give me some of that as well. We'll take a break. Again, we're speaking with doctors uh, Kyle Kopko and Christopher Devine, the authors of the book The Vice President Advantage, The VP Advantage, How Running Mates Influence Home State Voting in Presidential Elections. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. What really is the advantage of a vice presidential candidate? I mean, many times they just seem like they sit there and smile at the uh, State of the Union address. But it doesn't, sometimes you're wondering what's really the advantage, but when it comes to the candidate, there's a lot of myths apparently around, um, around having a vice presidential pick. And joining us today are two authors and researchers from um, that wrote the book, The Vice President Advantage, or The VP Advantage, How Running Mates Influence Home State Voting in Presidential Elections. And their names, of course, are uh, Dr. Kopko, Dr. Devine. They are professors. Um, Dr. Kyle Kopko is an assistant dean for academic achievement and engagement as, at Elizabethtown College. Um, also Associate Professor of Political Science. Dr. Chris Devine is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Mount Vernon Nazarene University, and they've co-authored this book. Uh, welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you so much for helping us with this. Thank you. And walking, us, us. walking us through all of this. Now, uh, Dr. Devine, I got, a, I got a crazy question for you, because it yeah. seems like the people that needed your advice, it was, it was the Ted Cruz campaign. Because he jumped on Carly Fiorina, he brought her in as a vice presidential candidate, seemingly when his when his candidacy was waning in the primaries. But I think he, I guess he thought he would deliver maybe women, uh, maybe he would deliver um, California. It seems that he didn't quite understand the impact of choosing a vice presidential candidate. Is, is that what went down? It was a desperation move. It was something that I don't think the campaign uh, ultimately wanted to do, uh, but it was the only choice they felt like they had left. Uh, perhaps they thought they could consolidate um, some support from the anti-Trump movement uh, and and give this sense that not only what, uh, was there were there multiple candidates who were against Trump, but maybe they were trying to create the impression that Cruz is truly presidential and could be seen as a credible alternative to Trump. Uh, I also think uh, in, in that case, you know, Kyle was talking before about one of the things, the, the marginal things that, that running mates in an election really can do. Uh, they can help to double down on a message. Hmm. I mean, politics is really a form of marketing. It's branding. Right. And just like, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's trying to stay stronger together and, and Donald Trump's trying to say, make America great again, uh, sometimes a, a running mate can help to reinforce that message. And part of what uh, Ted Cruz is trying to say was, I'm an outsider. I'm not of Washington. I'm going to try and do things differently. We're actually going to get results just like you'd see in the private sector as opposed to the public sector. Well, Carly Fiorina fits all of those things. She had no political experience. She was a businesswoman. Uh, she could claim uh, results in the, in the private sector. So I think he's probably going for, for uh, those things. Was he also hoping for a boost from women? I think that's quite possible, especially given the dynamic of uh, you know Donald Trump's troubles with, with women or at least in the controversies uh, surrounding that. So he may have been hoping for that. Uh, but, you know, hopefully uh, 
he'll he'll uh, read our research and, and uh, be be enlightened. <laughs> I think all of the parties, I mean, all of these consultants that are getting paid big bucks to to get out there and direct a campaign, they they need they should be reading the research because this is this is good learning. Then you don't have to waste as much time in a state that might not deliver otherwise. Talk. Yeah, and even speaking of what, what, what Kyle was saying before about the, the campaign visits, um, you know, we see this, we, we track this, uh, that the campaigns believe in the home state advantage. First of all, we see that the media believe in the home state mm-hmm. We actually do uh, some analysis of media coverage in the past, and about half the time they talk about a potential vice presidential selection, they mention the home state or the home region. So we see that in the media. Yeah. But even from the presidential candidates, uh, we find, for instance, when you look at the people who make the VP shortlist, disproportionately they come from more competitive states. And then as Kyle's referencing also, once you get into the campaign, like he was talking about Wisconsin, both campaigns combined visited Wisconsin once. Mitt Romney did once before Paul Ryan's selection on August 11th in mm-hmm. 2012. After that, they had, I think it was a total of 43 visits. Holy jumped way up. The, av- the advertising jumped up 400%. They were wasting some of their resources. Not that they couldn't win Wisconsin, right. but they treated it as the fifth most competitive state. It was really more like the tenth most competitive state. Yeah, and then disproportionately, you know, bet on it. Yeah. Wow. Um, Dr. Kopko, talk to us about uh, the, the idea of using a candidate or vice presidential selection to unify the party. It seems like all we talked about in these um, the, the last two weeks is the fact that both of these, the GOP and the DNC, need to unify. Does it work to bring on a candidate as the unifier? It doesn't always work, and it, it can sometimes be a, a double-edged sword. So e- even when viewing the Tim Kaine selection, the Clinton campaign tried to frame him as uh, a really solid progressive. They were trying to reach out to the Bernie Sanders supporters uh, for the purposes of unification. Will that work? Well, there's still been some uh, disagreements with Bernie supporters. Some of them still walked out. But even if you look at past elections, one of the greatest examples is the 1976 Republican uh, convention. Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan uh, were in a very spirited campaign. It was the last time there was a contention contested convention. And Ronald Reagan, leading into the convention, named Richard Schweiker of Pennsylvania, Senator of Pennsylvania, who was a pretty moderate to liberal Republican as his running mate. And it actually infuriated uh, Senator Jesse Helms uh, and some other conservatives. Yeah, so it it didn't help to unify the party in that regard. Then you have someone like Sarah Palin in 2008, uh, where there is some empirical evidence in the political science research that she did help to mobilize or energize uh, the conservative base. But at the same time, there's also research out there that suggests that she could have cost upwards of 2.1 million votes among swing voters because she was viewed as being more extreme Holy uh, among that demographic. So it, it, it's kind of a complicated issue. You could help to unify the party. You could help to shore up the base, but there could also be opportunity costs for doing so. Well, but we don't overlook, <laughs> don't overlook, Dr. Kopko, the benefit that Sarah Palin gave to NBC's um, Saturday Night Live. Yes, she made true. them lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> they've, had, they've, they've had a good run because of her. They have, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, talk to us, uh, Dr. Devine, about some past um, vice presidential uh, you know, uh, partners in, pres- in the presidency. Who, who in the past uh, – uh, Dr. Kopko mentioned earlier the last two vice presidents have been very powerful. In the past, who have been other influential vice presidents? You know, it's funny, you're just talking about Sarah Palin and the effect that, that she had, and, and tying into your question here, what strikes me is that she was so visible in that campaign. Yeah. 
she was a, a um, I mean, pre- vice presidential candidates are always visible in a, in a campaign, but not nearly as much as the presidential candidates. And I think one reason why we're still talking about, about Sarah Palin's candidacy eight years later is that she was an exception to that rule. Well, this translates to off, uh, being in office, that the vice president, although quite visible, very prominent uh, member of na- national government, is not nearly on the scale of the president. And so, you know, it's hard to talk about candidates, or excuse me, vice presidents, who were uh, particularly uh, popular or, or attracted a lot of attention because there just aren't right. people, uh, a lot of them, at least, at least in comparison. But we see really since, uh, and this built off some work by another um, uh, law professor, Joel Goldstein, who recently uh, had, had a book uh, kind of tracing this out, and uh, really documents that the vice president's power really uh, grew, started to grow under Walter Mondale. Uh, under Jimmy Carter. And really since that time, almost uh, step-by-step with every vice president, you see increasing power. What's interesting about that is that their formal duties have never changed. They still, under the Constitution, are responsible for nearly nothing. They're they're on call in case the president dies or resigns or or something like that. They break ties in the Senate, which almost never happens. And their other constitutional duty is to open the envelopes when they come in from the states from the Electoral College. certify who won the election. They don't do a whole lot. They don't yeah. be able to count and, and <laughs> cast votes that never come. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to talk about who's uh, really powerful <laughs> in, in that sense, because that's been static. Where they're powerful is when the president gives them more power, uh, informal duties. For instance, like uh, Barack Obama telling Joe Biden, hey, we need to get a budget deal done with Congress. You go lead the negotiation. Yeah. So it's really delegated. I guess it would have to be delegated power. And and talk. Tell me, uh, Doctor Devine, about that. Is that is is it still the fastest, best, easiest route route to the presidency? Is through the vice presidency? It, it probably is, and this is so ironic historically because you know we think that it's always been the case that the vice president was next in line for the presidency. Actually, 1836, uh, Martin Van Buren went from being Andrew Johnson's vice president, uh, one term vice president. He took over Johnson Jackson's second term. And then he ran for the presidency in 1836 and won, then he lost re-election in 1840. After that, the next vice pre- sitting vice president to then be elected was George H.W. Bush in 1988, 150 years in between where no one succeeded directly from the vice presidency to the presidency. Hmm. Even being nominated uh, directly to that position, we have to wait from, from Van Buren until, um, until Richard Nixon in 1960. Uh, and then, of course, if you were Humphrey doing it and, and so on. So it became a stepping stone, but that's actually a pretty recent phenomenon of about the last half century. And I think that is something that's also contributed to the power of the vice presidency, because these days, well, actually, ironically, um, Biden and Cheney have been exceptions, but it had been the case for a while that presidents were looking to their vice presidents as the people who would carry on the legacy by hopefully getting elected the next time around and hopefully building on the policies of that president's administration. Yeah, you, you almost saw that when President Obama spoke that he was just setting up his legacy, like, here we go. Keep this party going. Uh, as we wrap it up, um, Dr. Kopko, help us just understand, in the end, um, this is a weird election this this year. And I, I, I would love just your insight as one who's who's been researching presidents and vice presidents. Anything that we should be just paying attention to in and and maybe feeling more secure about candidates at the presidency level that we worry about, should the vice presidents make us feel any more secure? 
Well, I, I think they should enter into the decision calculus at some level. Uh, it's, it's kind of an adage now to say that the selection of a vice president is really the first presidential action by a candidate. Mm. They're sending a message to voters. They're saying, this is who is going to succeed me in the event of an unforeseen circumstance. And another thing to keep in mind is both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have historically high unfavorable ratings. We've never seen so unpopular major party candidates (laughs) in in the modern era. Uh, So what the vice presidential candidates say and do will reflect upon the vice uh, upon the presidential candidates, how much uh, it's going to matter somewhat at the margins. But given how unliked uh, both presidential candidates are it could matter to some degree Mm -hmm. we'll find out yeah no great well we appreciate both of you and your great work on uh your book doctors kyle uh, kopko and christopher devine thank you so much for being with us thank you you bet and go go find the book the vice president advantage the vp advantage how running mates influence home state voting in presidential elections We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be playing a little uh, trivia about Hillary Clinton. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, have we got a, a moment for you. A few Last week, we did a little uh, Donald Trump trivia. So Sadie Nielsen has put together a little Hillary Clinton trivia so we can understand and know more about our potential future president. But uh, we got to make it a game. So let's play the game music. Disclaimer, this one is a little bit harder than the last one. So okay. good luck. Okay. Uh, the okay. last one you tricked me because I thought the questions were harder. So this up anyway. Okay. Fine. Good luck. Okay. Yeah. You just have to answer true or false. Okay. okay. Okay, Hillary Clinton was raised in Little Rock, Arkansas, along with her two younger brothers, Hugh Jr. and Anthony. False, false. False, false? Yes. The first one is false. She was not raised in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was raised in Illinois. Yes. By her mother. Yes, that is correct. Yes! Ah, Good job. This is so fun! Okay, this is a a good one. Are you ready? Yeah. As a young woman, Hillary was active in young Democrat groups. False. Her mother was a Republican. That is true. Um, she was active in young Republican groups uh, uh, and campaigned uh, 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 for presidential nominee Barry Goldwater in 1964. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what she did. Um, after hearing a speech by Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, Clinton was inspired to become a Democrat. Sure. I'll believe that. Yes. Oh. It was a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, yes. I did know that, too. I thought one was tricky. Okay, I made that, that one tricky. really tricky. That was really tricky. All right. Next one. Hillary met Bill Clinton while attending school at Yale Law. Yes. Roger that. True. Yes. Absolutely. absolutely. And the next one. Both Hillary and Bill Clinton are Methodists. Yes. That's true. She's a Methodist. She is a Methodist. Bill is a Southern Baptist. You're so close. You're playing trickery with this. I, I thought we were talking about Hillary, not Bill. But anyway, they kind of come as a package. They sure do. So got to put them together. Yeah. Okay, next one. When Hillary Clinton was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2001, she became the first American first lady to ever win a public office seat. False. It's true. Is that true? It's true. Is it really? Look it up. I Eleanor it. Roosevelt didn't have an office. <laughs> she ran for an office. According to uh, uh, the fact sheet that I maybe had, not, maybe that was, not. Uh, okay. it was true. Okay. 
Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton are the first and only first couple to be fingerprinted by the FBI. The first and only? No, false. Is that true? It is true. <laughs> why? Why were just, why just them? I don't know. They well, didn't provide I, details on I, that. Well, I think I understand. <laughs> but uh, that is the They've truth. They've both been investigated by the FBI. Yes. So they uh, they both need their fingerprints. Oh, that's embarrassing. So okay, uh, we only got time for one more. Okay, this is the last one we have. Okay. Um, Hillary Clinton won a Golden Globe Award for her work as a consultant on the TV show The West Wing. No way. Yeah, it's false. Good. But she actually did win a Grammy Award um, for, oh, for her, her, book. her book, It Takes a Village. Wow. So, Come on. There you go. Wow, Sadie. See, that was easy. And we just learned a lot about Hillary. Uh-huh. See how that works. We'll take a break, folks. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show's It's in the books. We'll come back. we got more fun for you. Stick with us. It's the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio.